welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Rosemary Kalanick, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame and author of a recent book, Black Gold and Black Male, Oil and Great Power Politics. Rose, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Your book looks at how great powers fear the prospect of oil coercion and develop anticipatory strategies to secure their access to foreign supply. First, tell us what you mean by oil coercion, and then also what kind of strategies do states adopt to protect against it? Okay, great. Well, oil coercion is also sometimes known as the oil weapon. That's a pretty familiar term, I think, for for many people and many Americans, certainly ones who lived through the 1970s oil crises. Um, So oil coercion is, is the idea that one country could try to coerce or persuade, it's not force exactly, but persuade another country to change their policies in a way that the targeted country would not otherwise do. Um, And they persuade them to do this by threatening to cut off their access to oil, right? Or by potentially actually cutting off the access. So country A says to country B, do what I want you to do or else I'm going to cut off oil to you. So that's oil coercion. That's something that great powers and really all states worry about um, happening to them. Uh, Because states or great powers in general are forward thinking, they're worried about the future, they're thinking about threats that could come up at any time, Um, they, they plan ahead of time. So they don't just sort of allow themselves to be vulnerable and to fall into a situation where some state comes along and says, hey, do this or else I'll cut off your oil. Um, So instead of allowing that to happen, um, they take what I call anticipatory strategies, right, to try to prevent themselves from being vulnerable in the first place so that ideally they're never coerced to begin with. Um, And those strategies fall into three sort of broad categories, right? Um, The first category is self-sufficiency measures. And that is um, that consists of policies that are generally domestic policies that countries can take um, to boost the amount of oil that's available to them, you know, in a short run scenario. So it could be that they build a strategic petroleum reserve. It could be that um, in a more medium to longer term thing, uh, it could be a number of things. Um, it could be that uh, great powers build a strategic petroleum reserve. So a stockpile of oil that they can draw on if some kind of emergency happens. Um, or if it's a country that actually does produce oil, um, they could use government investments to increase the oil supply, right? So subsidized drilling, things of that nature. Um, they could also, uh, you know, get involved in in sort of supporting alternative fuels. So Nazi Germany, for instance, uh, had um, a huge coal to oil synthetic fuels program where they, in a very inefficient manner, turned you know four or five tons of coal into one ton of oil through this complicated chemical process, right? Um, So those are the domestic strategies, the self-sufficiency strategies. The other two strategies um, involve foreign policy in some way, right? So the sort of middle strategy is indirect control. And with this strategy, great powers basically find some country or countries that are petroleum exporters and enter into an alliance with them. Um, The idea is that they want to make sure that, you know, okay, they can only expand their domestic supplies so much. They're going to need oil from some 
other country out there and they want to protect that country from some rival great power. Right. And so you can think of it in terms of the U.S. and what it has done in the Middle East or what it did in the Middle East during the Cold War. Right. So we protect Iran from the Soviets. We have this you know, alliance of sorts um, between Iran and the United States. The idea that, you know, we're not going to allow the Soviets to come in and take Iranian oil or cut off Iranian oil to the rest of the world. And then the third strategy um, is direct control. And this is the most aggressive strategy and the most risky strategy that also has the greatest potential rewards. And basically, it's just straight up conquest, right? So a country decides, okay, you know, I'm really vulnerable to oil coercion. Um, we need to go and conquer some other territory that controls that uh, that possesses oil. We have to go conquer some other territory that possesses oil. Um, so the Japanese did this. Uh, you know, during World War II, where they, um, at the same time that they attacked Pearl Harbor, um, they attacked, you know, what is now Indonesia, right, the Dutch East Indies, um, which is a heavily oil producing region, and just conquered it and annexed the territory so that they have the oil supplies there directly. Now, the downside of that is you're starting a war, <laughs> right, uh, which is a costly and risky endeavor. Um, so that tends to be the, the maximalist strategy. And you only do that if you're really desperate. You know, if you face a medium level of vulnerability to coercion, um, you might instead pursue an indirect strategy, which also risks war, right? You're saying, if a war breaks out, I'm going to protect these guys. But you're not necessarily starting the war yourself. So it's less costly um, and it's less risky. But there is some risk that you could be drawn into a conflict to protect the ally, and then the sufficiency measures are the least risky and potentially the least costly. I mean, you know, a country could invest as much as they wanted, but, you know, it doesn't scale up very well. Why do you think Britain decided to pursue the direct control strategy after World War One? Yeah. So at the close of World War One, Britain pursues this direct control strategy by conquering parts of Mesopotamia from the Turks. Um, they do it because Britain... Uh, is a country that has no oil whatsoever on their territory, right? They have been to that point a major, major naval power, right? And that power was driven by coal. And Britain is a huge coal producing country. So it works out great for them, right? They can control the seas. They control, you know, huge reserves of coal, which they use to power their navy, right? Um, during World War One, it becomes obvious that, Oil is far superior to coal when it comes to uh, fuel for transport of all kinds, but particular, particularly for the Navy. And so during the course of the war, all of the major navies start to transition more and more heavily towards oil. Um, and that's partly because they're, they're building new ships that run on oil. And it's also because the coal-powered ships get sunk at a higher rate. Right? Um, and so... Oil burning ships are faster, they can maneuver better, they have a greater range, they don't have to refuel as often, um, et cetera, et cetera. They have all these advantages. And so Britain sees this happening during World War I. Um, and for them, it's extremely threatening, right? All of a sudden, there's this fuel that they desperately need to maintain their naval supremacy, and they don't have any of it, right? And so the only supply they can really realistically get their hands on is the Middle East. Um, at the time, interestingly enough, the Middle East was not producing very much oil, right? Um, there was some oil coming out of Persia, but I, it was something like about 5% of global supply, right? Most of the oil 
um, being produced at the time was coming from the United States. Right. Um, but they understood that over the next 10, 20, 30 years, the Middle East was going to become the major producing region of oil. And so they wanted to get in at a time that they could now so that in 20 or 30 years, if there's another war with Germany or with Russia or with whomever, um, they would control this you know, massive source of supply and those other powers wouldn't. You mentioned uh, the case of Japan in World War II as well. Um, what was happening to Japan's supply as the war went on and, and what did they do to try to address that vulnerability? Yeah, so Japan's a super interesting case. Um, they built up a giant stockpile of oil um, and they started building that up in the 1930s. Um, long before they attacked Pearl Harbor. And as they were expanding in Asia, they were coming into conflict with the United States because the United States didn't like that they were invading these various countries and the U.S. found their naval power to be potentially threatening. And so the United States you know, issued an ultimatum to Japan and basically said, look, you know, if you continue to expand in Asia, bad things will happen to you. <laughs> um, at some point, the Japanese even though they had a massive stockpile of oil, um, as much as two years worth, uh, they realized that because their interests in Asia conflicted with the United States' interests, war with the United States was going to be inevitable. And if they got into a war with the United States, A, they would need a lot more oil than they thought they were going to need. And B, that oil would be threatened. Japan, like Britain, um, is an island that also has no oil on it whatsoever. So they are completely dependent on imports, which means that they can be cut off through a blockade. And they reasoned, okay, if war with the United States is inevitable, the United States is going to blockade our oil supplies at some point. Um, they decided uh, you know, that they needed to get their hands on their own supply and control their own supply. Now, of course, that doesn't change their geography. They're still an island. Um, but uh, they didn't want to rely on countries like the United States, which they had previously been importing oil from in order to get oil. And they reasoned that, okay, if they acted first, if, if they conquer the Dutch East Indies and at the same time attack the Pacific fleet, they have a pretty good chance of being able to get oil back and forth from the Dutch East Indies to the homelands um, or the home islands. And they hoped that the United States would not fight a long war with Japan. Right. So Pearl Harbor really, in a lot of ways, is motivated by this need for oil. Right. Um, the need to, to destroy as much of the Pacific fleet as the Japanese possibly could so that the U.S. threat to it was just nullified from the very beginning. And, and then what did the case of Nazi Germany tell us about how states pursue anticipatory strategies? Yeah. Nazi Germany is fascinating because. You would think, based on what we know of Hitler, that this would be a country that would go for conquest, that they would go for a direct control strategy, right? Hitler never met a country he didn't really want to conquer, right? This is the most conquest-obsessed guy of the 20th century, right? Um, and yet the strategies that he pursues, especially early in the war, are not, are not direct control strategies, right? He starts off with self-sufficiency, then he escalates to an indirect control strategy, and he only goes to direct control when the situation turns extremely dire, right? And so I think this case of all the cases maybe provides the best support for my theory about when and why states take these strategies. Um, earlier on in 
you know, the run up to World War II, you know, Germany's oil situation is actually not that bad. It's not great. Germany does produce oil, but doesn't produce very much. It only produces, you know, 20 or 30% of its needs, something like that. Um, as it slowly takes over places in Europe, uh, Austria, uh, Poland, et cetera, it gets a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, at the time, it's it's early in the oil industry in Germany. It's the early years. And so they're hoping, they have wishful thinking that maybe they're going to find more, you know, they're going to discover more oil in Germany. And to them, that was a possibility. Unfortunately for them, that was not the case, right? Um, so early on, you know, Hitler's using, he, he's, he's expanding in Europe and he's trying to do it in a way that doesn't provoke conflict. And he follows these domestic strategies because he has some of his own oil. Um, and he's pretty sure that Britain and France are not going to challenge him, that Britain, France and Russia, in fact, are not going to challenge him. And so he reasons, OK, you know, at least for the first few years of this, um, we're going to pursue self-sufficiency. And so they start this massive coal to oil um, hydrogenization program that's extremely inefficient. Um, but they do it, right, because they have a gap in supply that they need to plug. And they actually think that it could be cost effective to plug that gap with domestic production through this synthetic means, right? Um, that's their main strategy, as long as war doesn't break out. Uh, when Germany invades Poland and Britain and France declare war on Germany, uh, you know, September, well, he invades September 1st, 1939. They declare war on the 3rd. Hitler's surprised. He sort of thought that the British and the French were completely spineless and that they were not going to start a conflict with him. Once that conflict escalates, he decides that he needs to follow an indirect control strategy. So he knocks on Romania's door. He knocks on the Soviet Union's door, interestingly enough, right? And he sets up economic alliances with both of those countries uh, where he's actually exporting weapons to Romania and to Russia. Russia, which is his sworn enemy. Russia, which he's planning to invade a year later, right? He actually exports weapons to them in exchange for oil, right? Through this economic alliance that they that they sign um, in the context of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact when they partition Poland, right? So his arch enemy, he arms them in order to get oil from them. Right. That, again, was enough, he thought. Right. As long as the war didn't totally go out of hand. Um, and, you know, another contributing factor to this is the Blitzkrieg strategy. Right. So Hitler develops a strategy that allows him to economize on not just oil, but really all supplies of war making. Right. And the strategy is you go in uh, extremely quickly with tanks, you bust through enemy lines you go into the rear uh, of the conflict, you knock out the headquarters, you knock out their supply lines, and very quickly you can overcome a country's military. And so he reasoned, as it turned out correctly, that he could defeat even major powers very quickly. And by doing that, he wouldn't need to have huge supplies of oil for a long period of time. He didn't want to be fighting these long wars of attrition, right? Germany would be at a strategic disadvantage for that, for that kind of war. Right. So he fights France and knocks France out of the out of the balance of power within six weeks. Right. Which is really remarkable and also means he doesn't need that much oil. Right. Um, it's only when 
he decides to invade the Soviet Union, that uh, things really fall apart in his strategy, right? So he thinks he, okay, I just knocked France out of the, the balance of power. I'm going to be able to knock the Russians out. And he comes very, very close to doing it within a few months. After the war bogs down into a war of attrition on the Eastern Front, then Hitler and, and you know his people realize, oh no, <laughs> right? Now we're in this long war. We're going to need large supplies of oil for months and months and potentially years. Um, and that becomes, you know, the point at which he turns southward in his Russian campaign and goes for the oil in the Caucasus, right? His initial goals were to go to Moscow, right? To knock out the enemy right away. Um, but then the following spring, spring of 1942, uh, instead he turns south and tries to grab Russia's oil supplies. By then it was too late. In what ways did the Cold War change U.S. strategies to secure overseas oil? Yes. So um, before the Cold War, the United States really didn't need overseas oil. Um, the U.S. was oil Godzilla for the first hundred years of commercial oil production, right? So commercial oil production begins in 1859. Um, and all the way until the 60s, the U.S. is every single year the biggest oil producer in the whole world, right? Um, and they are the ones, it's American oil that fueled World War I and World War II, right? The U.S. provided oil to Britain and France. It provided uh, high-octane fuel, aviation fuel to the Soviets during World War II. Um, so the U.S. is an extremely oil-secure country. But when the Cold War happens, right, when the U.S. realizes okay, the Soviets have made inroads in Europe. They now occupy large portions of Eastern Europe and, and half of Germany, more than half of Germany. Um, the U.S. now faces this giant adversary, um, and it decides that Western Europe, the fate of Western Europe, is really closely tied to American security, right? Um, if the Soviets rolled their steamroller all the way across Europe, took over the rest of Germany, took over France, maybe expanded into Britain, right? This would be a massive threat to the United States. And so all of a sudden, American objectives change, right? It's not just about, oh, we have to have enough oil to protect the United States homeland. No, we have to have enough oil to also protect our allies in Western Europe. And those allies, by the way, are extremely oil poor allies. And so, um, you know, even though American supplies are still robust, uh, the strategic objectives and the needs that the United States had expanded hugely with the sort of decision to become the guarantor of Western European security and sovereignty from the Soviet threat, right? Um, and so that changes American calculations. The United States moves from, you know, various points before World War II, it either did nothing because it was secure in oil or did some small number of self-sufficiency strategies. Um, at the advent of the Cold War, and especially as the Cold War progressed, the United States moves into an indirect control strategy where you know, it realizes, okay, if NATO got into a war, a conventional war with the Soviet Union on the European front, um, it would not necessarily have enough oil to win that war if the Middle East fell into the hands of the Soviets. 
Now, the U.S. knew that large portions of the Middle East would fall into the hands of the Soviets. That was inevitable because the Middle East borders the Soviet Union. Um, it would be very difficult to defend it. But they were hoping that if they could defend some parts of it, if they could defend Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, the Trucial states, which are now the, the United Arab Emirates, um, if they could keep the Soviets out of there, then they would have a much better chance of of winning the war in a shorter period of time. Um, they also figured that they would have to reconquer places like Iraq and Iran if they fell to the Soviets. Um, and so, you know, extending some kind of American protection, selling weapons, um, you know, much later in the Cold War, uh, trying to begin um, an American presence in the Middle East, right, to deter the Soviet Union from conquests in the region, right? This is where, this is really where American involvement in the Middle East originated. Would it be fair to say that a state's perception of its vulnerability to oil coercion depends in part on how expansive its strategy is? This came to me when I was reading your your bit in about the Cold War. With the, with the United States' expanded global role, they saw the need then for uh, more effort to secure this commodity. And there were lots of people at the time that suggested more of a self-sufficiency approach was appropriate and doable. That's absolutely right. So it depends a lot on what a state's strategic objectives are, right? Um, not just, you know, well, so put it this way. I argue in the book that there are two main variables or two main factors that determine how vulnerable a state is to coercion and then how how aggressive they're willing to be in terms of the strategies they pursue, right? One of them is how vulnerable they are to oil cutoff. And that cutoff really means military cutoff. It's very difficult to cut off oil just with trade um, for a variety of reasons that, that you know, I could get into if, if you're interested. But um, so the first variable is, you know, can another country physically interrupt oil shipments to, to your state? The other variable is what I call the petroleum deficit. And the petroleum deficit consists of how much oil you have versus how much oil you need. Um, and so it's, it's pretty clear. I think it's pretty intuitive. All right. If all of a sudden you discover a new oil supply somewhere, um, you know, the amount of oil that you have increases, the deficit between what you have and what you need decreases, and you're going to, you know, dial back your strategic anticipation accordingly. Right. But it's not just how much oil you have that determines this. Right. It's how much oil you need. And that depends on, you know, civilian essential requirements. But it also depends on how much oil you think your military is going to need for any plausible threat scenario. And so if you are a country that, you know, if you are like Japan during the 1930s and into the 1940s and you are bent on expansion, um, your strategic need for oil is going to be much, much, much larger. Right. Um, and so your petroleum deficit is going to be larger than it might otherwise be. Um, and so when, you know, thinking forward, moving forward today and into the future, um, many people wonder about China, right? Is China, what measures are China, are the Chinese going to uh, undertake to secure their access to oil? Well, a lot of it depends on what the Chinese want, right? And whether or not they are actually an expansionist power or not. And if they are not an expansionist power, if they're essentially, you know, maybe they want 
Taiwan, that's, that's expansion, but they're not necessarily interested in, you know, using military force to conquer other countries, then that means they're not going to need as much oil, right, um, as they otherwise might. Now, their essential civilian need is still going to be massive because they're a massive economy, uh, a huge country, and they're still industrializing, they're still developing. So there's a lot of room for more and more people in China to, to buy cars for the first time. So their demand is going to go up. Um, but what they think they need is going to hinge crucially on what their plans are for the 21st century. Right. Uh, so in some sense, their perception of their vulnerability it depends on their perception of the world and what they want in terms of their strategy. Do you have an intuition about whether states are generally accurate about this? You know, one could make the argument, and many have, that, you know, the United States has gone overboard in its approach of indirect uh, control, and maybe its supply and access is not as vulnerable as it perceives. Yes. From the cases, the historical research that I've done, um, it seems to me that states are pretty accurate, uh, given the level of scientific knowledge at the time, right? So there are various points in history in the United States where the best geologists thought the U.S. was running out of oil. Turns out they just didn't understand oil geology as well as they thought, right? And the U.S. actually had a lot more. So, you know, there are inaccuracies in terms of um, just sort of technological know-how in estimating these things. However, um, Generally speaking, the processes that countries use to, to try to figure out how much oil they have and need, I see them as pretty rational. They seem to be pretty rational. Um, when it comes to the case of the contemporary of the United States, uh, you know, this is something where the book can't explain what the U.S. has been up to in the Middle East for the past 15 years or so, at least, right? You know, it can't explain everything. <laughs> and by and large... Certainly, the U.S. war in Iraq in 2003 and, and involvement in the region since really has not had anything to do with oil, right? The United States is oil secure. The U.S. is not vulnerable to coercion now, and it has not been since the end of the Cold War. Um, that's because primarily the U.S. is the biggest, most powerful country in the world. Nobody can forcibly cut off our oil. In fact, we are the number one threat for other people, right? Other countries worry about us using our Navy to cut off their oil, countries including China, right? The U.S. is just not vulnerable to, to interruptions in supply. And so for that reason alone, never mind the fact that the U.S. also produces a whole bunch of oil, you know, the U.S. just isn't vulnerable. Um, so you know, oil coercion or the fear of oil coercion can't explain why the U.S. got involved in, in Iraq in 2003 and you know why they've stayed in the Middle East since the end of the Cold War, right? Um, that has to have something to do with bureaucratic inertia, with other threats in the region, worries about terrorism, uh, proliferation uh, of nuclear weapons by Saddam Hussein, et cetera, et cetera. As far as I can tell, American leaders understand that the U.S. is very secure in this manner, and that's just not the thing motivating American policy. You mentioned a lot of the approaches that the United States takes in this domain 
create fear in other states that they are more vulnerable to oil coercion. Uh, we think about this with China and the Malacca Straits and so on. And I wonder about that with respect to this accuracy question, because given the uncertainty inherent in the international system, states are incentivized, even if this is rational, to kind of overdo it because they just don't know. It's about what might happen in a war scenario or something. And so in that kind of scenario, and in the one that the United States faces now, does it make a little sense to uh, chill out? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for China, it makes sense for them to want to cover their bases as much as possible, right? Um, it makes sense for the United States to chill out because really, there's really no threat. I mean, we're just so militarily superior to everybody else. But for China, you know, if I, if I were a Chinese policymaker, if I were a Chinese leader, I would be very worried about the United States interfering with my supply of oil, right? Um, even if it's pretty unlikely. I mean, I certainly just as an individual hope that there is never a war between the United States and China. It would be devastating to both countries, right? I don't see how that would be in these countries' interests. But sometimes wars happen, um, you know, even if they're maybe not, you <laughs> uh, you know, not in the best interests of the states that are fighting them. And so China has to worry, you know, that the United States and it could get into some kind of conflict. And if that did happen, right, um, what are China's vulnerabilities, right? What, what are the ways in which the United States could get at China, could hurt their military power, could hurt them, you know, just punish them economically, right, in order to get the Chinese to change their policies, right? So I can imagine, and, and I'm not the only one who has, uh, could imagine a scenario where China in some way, you know, extends their political influence in Taiwan. Maybe they invade Taiwan. I'm not saying that's likely to happen, but if that did happen, right? Um, they would have to expect a response from the United States, or they'd have to worry about a response. Maybe not expect it, but at least worry about a response from the United States. And what could the United States do? Well, the United States could, you know, um, try to cut off oil to China by, you know, imposing a blockade, um, by, uh, you know, imposing checkpoints through the Strait of Malacca. Uh, now, China is not as vulnerable to this as other countries were historically, right? China is not Japan, right? China's not an island. And China actually produces a lot of oil. It produces something like 4 million barrels of oil a day, which is about the amount that Kuwait produces, right? So it's a pretty significant producer, but its demand is so much more than what it produces, right? The demand these days, I believe, is around 13 million barrels a day, um, but it's projected to increase significantly into the future. Right. So China produces a lot of oil, but not all of its oil by a long shot. Um, but it does have the advantage of being not an island and it borders some countries that produce a lot of oil. Right. So Russia produces and exports a lot of oil. Right. Um, Kazakhstan produces and exports a lot of oil uh, further away <laughs> in the supercontinent of Eurasia. Uh, Middle East produces and exports a lot of oil. And these are sources that would not be vulnerable to American naval power necessarily. These are sources that could potentially transport oil to China overland beyond the stretch of the Navy, of the U.S. Navy. Um, and so, you know, China has some additional sources of supply that are more difficult for the United States to get at. 
right? And as long as the United States and Russia, for instance, are not on the same page, it's very easy for me to imagine a scenario where some kind of crisis erupts between the United States and China and Russia says, well, you know, we're not going to get involved, right? We're going to keep selling oil to China just like we have been before. Um, or, you know, they could even decide, let's stick it to the United States and, and increase the amount of oil that we send to China, right? I mean, th those are possibilities. So China is not as vulnerable as some of the countries uh, that the book discusses in the past, um, even though they are going to have a big deficit, irregardless of their ambitions, simply because their economy is going to be so huge, right? Already is so huge. I think a lot of policymakers understand um, the potential, the future of Chinese policy on these questions to kind of hinge on U.S. policy. So I've read reports that there's a popular a notion in the Biden White House that if we continue to kind of step back from the Middle East after our withdrawal from Afghanistan, if we start to have a more distant relationship with some of these Arab Gulf partners, for example, if we have a, a lower uh, footprint in general, that will sort of incentivize China to step in to fill the void. Uh, you seem to be saying that China might make these calculations more based on its own sense of its own vulnerability, and it very much hinges on its own strategy, what it wants, independent of U.S. strategy. How do you how do you see that uh, that discourse? Yeah, well, I think that worrying about China's influence in the Middle East is is wrong in several ways. Um, so, if the United States steps back. It's not necessarily the case that China fills the void. The Chinese do not have the ability to project military power that the United States has. So it's not the case that China can become the, the, you know, the guarantor of the free flow of Persian Gulf oil to the world economy or even to China. Right. Um, they don't have the military power to do that. And they are decades away from having the military power to do that. Um, even even if the adversary they'd be facing were pirates, right? Let alone the United States, right? So the Chinese, there's, there's no Chinese military threat to the Middle East. And Chinese military power is not so valuable to these countries yet that they're interested or would be interested in becoming allies with China, for instance, if China pursued an indirect control strategy. So the military threat just isn't there and is not going to be there for 30 years, if ever. Um, in terms of influence, you know, if China wants to invest in oil production in Iran, I say have at it, right? <laughs> um, the more, especially, so whenever a country is bringing more oil to the world economy, that's great for everybody, right? Um, the United States has this notion or has had this notion for the past few decades that its role is to be the protector, the guardian of Gulf oil and make sure this oil gets to market. Um, if China assumes some of that role, or if China, aside from the military side of it, if China invested in drilling more oil in these various countries, getting more out of the ground in the Middle East, um, in Africa, they're doing a lot of this, uh, that's good for everybody because that's more oil for the whole world, right? Even if China took that oil and took it all back to China, then that means that China is not importing that oil from somebody else. So that the, the rest of the oil just flows to some other country. Now, in point of fact, China is not doing that. They're selling the oil on the global market anyway, right? Um, but so if China wants to you know, in, get 
involved in countries like, for instance, Sudan, right? Countries that have um, a history of civil violence that are unstable, that have regimes that abuse human rights, et cetera, et cetera. These are places that Western firms don't really want to invest for, for good reason, right? Um, if China wants to invest there and they're willing to sink the costs into it, um, that's good for everybody. You know, setting aside the question of climate change, right? It's good in terms of it brings lots of oil to the market. Assuming that that's a good thing, it's good for everybody. You know, when you look at, at it in a broader context, we need to decrease our, our oil consumption for global warming purposes or because of climate change, right? So that that's sort of a separate issue. Have energy markets changed over the years in ways that affect oil security and perhaps states' perception of their vulnerability? Oil markets have changed over the years, but I actually think they have not changed in a fundamental way. The biggest change that you had in oil markets, uh, in my opinion, happens after the Second World War, because that is when, you know, prior to the Second World War, the U.S. is really the one big producer, and Russia, aka the Soviet Union, um, is the other big producer, right? After World War II, you start to get production in many, many, many countries all over the world. Middle Eastern oil starts really coming online. You get more production in South America. You get more production in Asia. You start to get more production in Africa. Just the, the, the supply diversifies enormously, right? Um, compared to pre-World War II, when it was really dominated by the U.S. and the Soviet Union and nobody else. Um, that's a major change in the market. But things like moving from the contract system, right? So there was this long-term system of concessions that um, countries used to negotiate uh, with oil-producing countries um, to, say, have their, their own companies exclusively produce oil in Saudi Arabia for 30 years or something like that. That's what the market used to look like. Now, for the most part, the, the companies controlling oil are national oil companies. It's Saudi Aramco, for instance, right? Um, and there's a, a much more sophisticated spot market for oil, right? We hear on the news every day, oil prices went up to blah, 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 or oil traded at a lower rate today and prices decrease, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is new, but I don't actually think that fundamentally changes the picture very much, right? Since World War II, you've had many, many, many producers of oil um, and many, many, many consumers of oil. And it's been essentially a global market, regardless of the instruments used to buy the oil, regardless of whether it's a concession system um, or you know, a, a more market-based system, right? or a, a you know, short-term contract, medium-term, and long-term contract system. You know, people can get very wrapped up in that. And from a strategic standpoint, from a just an overarching strategic standpoint, I don't think that matters very much. Um, ultimately, you know, this is a liquid market, right? Not just because oil is liquid, but it, it's a liquid market. Um, and that makes it very difficult for one country or even a group of countries to interfere with the ability of other countries to get oil unless they're using military force, right? So, um, you know, if one country, if Iran decided it was angry at the United States or Canada or Japan, it could say, I'm not going to sell you guys oil. Okay, great. They'll just turn around and buy it from any number of other suppliers. 
And it's not even just that they buy it from suppliers, right? There are countries out there like Singapore. Singapore doesn't produce any oil, but they have huge refineries. They buy oil from other countries, refine it, and then sell it to third countries, right? So you can buy oil from countries that don't produce oil, (laughs) right? And so there's this ability to just find alternative suppliers all over the place. Um, And typically in a pretty, pretty quick fashion, right? Markets can adjust remarkably quickly. Um, And that was even the case in the 1970s. I mean, after action studies by the U.S. Congress, for instance, um, of the 1973 oil crisis discovered that actually the oil companies were able to reallocate their supplies in such a way that it's not clear that there was any oil shortage in the United States, right? Um, the, The images of long lines at gas stations or the experiences that people had at the time, right, of running out of gas or, or having to wait in a long line or having a gas rationing system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was all caused by American policy responses to the supposed embargo that OPEC, that a subset of OPEC countries um, imposed on the United States. It was not, there was not actually a real global shortage of any size. <laughs> not, not really. So yeah, so I mean, the market has changed, but in ways that I think are not fundamental changes. And since at least the 1970s, if not before, um, it's been this large diversified market, right? Um, now that's based on one giant assumption, which is that we have free markets, right? Until recently, say since Donald Trump uh, you know, became the president in, well, it started being the president in 2017, right? Since Donald Trump came into office, uh, or once he came into office, people's assumptions about a liberal open trading system started to be questioned a little bit more, right? Um, as long as there is an international oil market, countries have, and, and a country has access to buy stuff from it, they're secure, right? But if military force can cut off the access, or if countries decided, you know what, we're going to abandon an international, a free, relatively free system of international trade, and we're going to go back to, um, you know, a mercantilist existence where, um, you know, you buy and sell oil from certain countries only, and it's a closed system, and you don't allow other countries to buy it, right? That could be a different situation. We're very, very far away from that. Um, but I think it is worth noting that we take for granted that this international trade system exists, but it exists because of policies taken by states that could change. Rosemary Kalanick, thanks for joining us. Thank you.